0: I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. I like how I emphasize the word everyday because a lot of you are thinking, I have the feeling he's talking about every other day. Oh, he's talking about every day. Everyday compulsive negative thinking, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show and the social media handle is mentalpod. Uh, that would be mentalpod.com. Uh, if you haven't checked out the website, go check it out. There's a ton of stuff that you can uh, look at there. There's You can post in the forum, tons of great threads. Uh, you can read blogs, guest blogs. You can fill out surveys. There's about a do- dozen different surveys that you can fill out. Uh, you can contribute to the show through there. So, um, yeah, go check it out. I want to kick things off. Actually, before I read that, uh, a couple of things, a couple of little light bulb moments for me this this, this week. I was in my support group meeting, one of my support group meetings last night, and the thought occurred to me that the less i think of myself the more often i think of myself it's it's like i'm trying to heal some type of wound or issue through obsession and sometimes validation not like healthy validation not like you know having my pain or my experience validated but you know, maybe I don't know. Getting compliments on on something I did. Not that those are are bad, but in and of themselves, that oftentimes, you know, like Facebook likes or getting retweets, you know, those are nice. But those those are not enough to sustain us. And <laughs> what was that noise my throat just made? It's like there's a little tiny lizard in my throat that just burped um the only way i've found to heal pain or to process something is through connection and intimate validation and i don't mean sexual or physical validation but being seen being heard being felt having somebody let me know that I'm, I'm not imagining something that I'm going through or I went through. The other thing that I, that I realized is always kind of in the background. You know, I, I, I believe that there is something in the universe that is benevolent, and when we reach out to it, it can help us. And it can help open up pathways to a meaningful, purposeful life with a lot of peace. And it It can help us overcome addictions, can help us heal wounds. But there's always a low-level feeling in the back of my head that the universe or God or whatever it is that's at the other end of this, that it just doesn't get me. That, that it has this idea of a life for me that it thinks I want, but it overestimates my character. Kind of like like I want my life to be pizza, and it thinks I want my life to be broccoli. And that I'm not going to feel the feelings that I want to feel in life. And I think part of that, why I've been feeling that way lately is I've been going through a change in my meds. Uh, Those of you that listen regularly have have heard me share about recent struggles with cognition, trying to find the right words, putting sentences together. And my psychiatrist recommended that we try getting off Lamictal. He thinks that might be one of the things. So I've been weaning myself off that, but the depression has been coming back and that fucking blows it's no fun walking around not really getting the enjoyment out of things that you normally enjoy, feeling disconnected, feeling like you're going through the motions, almost like you're a ghost in your life. But I also started taking omega-3 recently and that seems to be helping with the cognition. So my hope is that I can go back to my dose of Lamictal and that will help with with the depression. So that's kind of I'm hopeful about that. And those of you that have played the trial and error thing with meds and depression and anxiety, for me, it's been so important to just be patient with the process. And, you know, there are times when you're trying a new med, you're going off a med, when you're looking at six to eight weeks of dealing with a feeling that may not be what you want. Maybe it's insomnia, maybe it's night sweats, maybe it's feeling like you're a ghost walking through your life, but I found that if I can have self-compassion and patience, very often I will get to a place where it will have been worth it instead of giving up and just trying to deal with my feelings by obsessively playing video games or you know, sleeping 14 hours a day. And the third thing that, uh, that came up, and this is actually, this would be a good place to give a plug for our uh, sponsor, betterhelp.com, um, my girlfriend and I got into a a disagreement uh, last weekend, and it, and it wasn't like you know like there was shouting or disrespect towards each other, but we were both very firm in how we felt about an issue. And I felt that it was her issue; she felt that it was my issue. And I said, "I need to to run this by some friends in my support group and and my therapist." And I did, and my therapist helped me kind of unpack this and realize that it's actually our issue, that 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 both of our issues are at play and they're affecting each other. And it was so nice to be able to get to that place. And when I called my girlfriend up and, and said, you know, what I talked to my therapist about and the feedback that she had given me, it made total sense to her, and the issue was resolved uh and the fact that we were able to work through this issue without disrespecting uh each other was really nice and, and and i think that that's can be attributed to the work that i've done in support groups and in therapy because i cannot get to that place by myself if i'm isolated my crazy brain starts warping everything anyway if you are if you've never tried online counseling uh i highly recommend checking out betterhelp.com mental i love being able to do it from from my house not having to get in the car we do it by video once a week Uh, so if you're interested go to betterhelp.com mental make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast Fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. I want to read a couple of brief surveys before we get to the interview with Zane. This is uh, from the memorable vacation arguments and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself C. And she writes... We were in a small fishing village at a restaurant on the pier. My mother and I were always scared around my stepfather at restaurants. He must have disliked the food because he yelled, pig's fodder, and flipped the table. (laughs) It's like, what is is your stepfather from the 1890s? Who knows? Maybe that's a local custom in that little fishing village. Maybe the chef, maybe. Oh, excuse me. Maybe the chef would have been upset if he hadn't uh, done something dramatic. This is from the same survey filled out by a person uh, who calls herself Anna, and she writes, "My husband and I took our five-year-old daughter to Disney. That the worst of the vacation arguments always happen at Disney World." Uh, And when she had fallen asleep in her pirate-themed room, we decided to go outside in front of the door to drink some Jaeger and beer. How could this go wrong? How could this possibly turn bad? I'm a nasty alcoholic. I'm almost eight months sober now, but yeah. So we were talking about our struggles, and that last time he had punched me in the face. I asked what I did to deserve it, and he said I was drunk. And in parentheses, I wasn't. Uh, and didn't realize that I really did deserve it, though, his words. I then just looked him in the eyes, told him I never did deserve it, and then punched him in the face and broke his glasses. The happiest place on earth. I want to uh, give a shout out for a great podcast that if you guys have never listened to it, uh, I think if you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll love it. It's uh, It's called The Risk podcast and there's if you love a good story especially one that's true it's uncensored um intimate hilarious sometimes scary sometimes truly beautiful you will love the the risk podcast the uh host Kevin Allison uh has been a guest on this podcast i've done the risk show a couple of times and it's just great. There's episodes. Uh, there's one about a guy who got kidnapped by a drug cartel, a, a girl who discovered she was living with a cannibal, a woman who learned the person she was sharing kinky fantasies online was actually her dad. Uh, and, and the stories are told with compassion and emotional intelligence, and it's truly inspiring. So find it all at riskshow.com. That's R-I-S-K hyphen show.com. Or just search on your podcast app for risk, R-I-S-K exclamation point. That's R-I-S-K exclamation point or risk hyphen show.com. Okay. So this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself sweaty handshake girl 666. And she writes, when I was 18 and still living at home, my parents told me that they were planning on getting a divorce. My dad still lived with us at the time, but was working on finding an apartment, sleeping in the basement in the meantime. My parents were both really civil and communicative. The environment felt emotionally charged, but in more of a sentimental way than a hostile way. We were all really fragile. I came home one afternoon after getting high, driving around and catching up with one of my childhood friends. I know now from talking about this recently that both parents knew I'd been smoking weed but didn't care enough to say anything. My younger brother wasn't home from school yet. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, just chatting and zoning out while my dad did dishes. Being there was a... Being there felt strange because the setting was familiar and comfortable, but we knew nothing was the same. One of the things I was struggling with a lot of the time was feeling like my happy nostalgia had been poisoned. All the little details in our house, the bathroom wallpaper, the smell of the carpet, the broken screen door, carried such vivid memories for me. I'd cry at the sight of something that made me remember when things felt simple. I remember my dad pulling a certain dish out of the dishwasher, a small plastic plate that my brother and I used to eat off of his kids. He was just kind of standing there looking at it, then started crying. I started crying too. Then my mom. He slammed the dish on the counter and said, it wasn't supposed to end up like this. We stayed in the kitchen for a while after that, just sobbing and reminiscing about where he used to, when he used to make us lunches, where the food was arranged to look like a funny face. I felt safe being so deeply vulnerable with them in a way that I hadn't before. Three years later, I feel as if I've become closer to both of them now than I ever was as a teenager. They both still wish each other a happy birthday every year. My dad comes to Thanksgiving with my mom's family. I call them on the phone several times a week just to talk about our days. Everything we knew fell apart after the divorce, it feels stronger now that we've put it back together. Nobody's,
1: Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's, and everyone's scared, scared and, and we're, we're just all, all in, in this together. together there was no joy overeating apathy doesn't leave any marks numbing out physically I wish that I was a girl panic attacks were so violent rudderless they were mistaken for seizures shot coke in my neck the TV was talking to me romantically I am becoming the woman that I feared he said there's going to be a saga of hunger strike." nothing's real and I'm going to die sometimes I just go hey I can't deal just beyond broken I'm on out you have to like fantasize about the person I'm with I'm gonna study fucking someone else it's okay to be
0: Stand up comic, uh, a sober person. You've been sober six and a half years. Yeah, about that. Yeah, and sometimes you do stand up at uh, rehabs and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's actually my my main gig. Mm-hmm. Is I uh, I tour uh, hospitals, drug treatment facilities, rehabs, sober livings, and all different types of other sober events. And we do stand up for people who are, you know, anywhere from from one day off heroin to I don't know mm-hmm. just a few weeks or months, and it's um. It's awesome. Yeah. Do you ever perform for people actively detoxing cuz even just
0: speaking in front of people like that is such a challenge to keep their attention? I can't imagine depending on laughs while everybody is, you know, just slobbering and nodding out.
1: Well, I'll tell you, the the way I got into this whole thing was 2 years ago in February of I guess 2017. I was trying to put on a just an event for people in recovery. I wanted to, you know, safe and sober place for people to come have a, a fun night on a Saturday night. And a friend of a friend couldn't bring any of his clients because he is the, he was the director of client services over at the Encino hospital mm-hmm. in the Serenity detox facility. And he, he called me and was like, look, man, I want you to come and do a show, a comedy show for my guys in the detox and. I went over to this hospital, looked at the space. We decided we were going to do it in the rec room. And we went over there on a Friday night and we were in front of two people. Um, I mean, there might've been a a couple others sprinkled in, but the two, two people stayed for the whole quote unquote show. Mm -hmm. Um, Gowns and slippers, gowns and slippers, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, an elderly woman, and then this younger guy, um, I obviously won't say his name, but he's from Montana, and he was three days off heroin and had just taken his Seroquel, and he sat there, and they, there was a big tub of ice cream, like a big ice cream cooler, and so he's munching his free ice cream sandwiches just going to town. I think he got through like eight or nine of them, and afterward, he like hugged us all and was like, Oh my God, I've never seen, I've never seen a live performance of anything before. And I, I've been doing heroin for years. He's like, cause he was having a great time. He's laughing. We're joking with him. We're, he's telling us stories. He was like, this was the greatest thing I've, that's ever happened. He's like, I never thought I was going to be able to have fun at all without putting heroin in my body. And it was a really emotional experience for him and for uh, myself and the group that I brought. So for two full years, they actually shut the doors Uh, I think early February of this year, but we were there every single Friday night. Wow. Yeah. And that's where, that's where the whole idea for doing comedy in rehab started was this detox facility. And I'll tell you, there were some nights, some Friday nights there where I'm playing, I'm doing an hour in front of people actively falling asleep into their ice cream drooling in wheelchairs, like barely conscious, but I'm, I'm giving it to them. I'm giving them both yes. barrels and you see them like shrug their shoulders a little bit and you could see that that was a bit of a laugh. All right. You know? Oh my God. You have thick skin, my friend. I mean, it's yeah. fun and there would be groups. There would be a lot of times where you get 10 or 12 people in that have become fast friends. Mm -hmm. They're detoxing. They're all freaking out. They're smoking a thousand cigarettes a day. And then they come in and they sit down for a show and it's less of me doing my jokes and more of me facilitating a hilarious conversation. Everyone's making fun of each other. Everyone's making fun of me and telling their own stories. And there's always like some class clown sort of guy that's getting up and doing his own bits. And man, it's um, it's fun to do comedy shows for like for people who are sitting down in an audience, but honestly, the most special nights I've had as a performer was in the Serenity Detox facility, doing shows like that. It was, you really can get personal with uh, with those small groups. yeah. And um, yeah, it's a shame they, they shut their doors, because I'd yeah. still be there.
0: Yeah, typically, the guy with one eye, missing an arm, you know, who did 20 years for bank robbery, is a little less judgmental than mm-hmm. your typical suburban couple out yeah, for a night. That's right. Hoping to see uh-huh. a ventriloquist. Uh, well, let's start from the beginning with your story. Uh, you're originally from Arizona.
1: Yeah, I'm originally from Tucson, Arizona. You're 34? 34. I was born uh, in 1984, and um, I was born to – my. both my parents are uh, – are sober alcoholics. Were and they sober when you were born? Yeah. My mom was like one second sober. My dad had some time, but yeah. my mom was, uh, was, she might not have been, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to tell. But, um, you know, I, we, I grew up in Tucson. We moved around a lot. My dad was a salesman. My mom's a hairdresser. And, you know, my early childhood we moved from Tucson to California, uh, like Oceanside and Carlsbad and, and La Jolla area, and then we ended up in we ended up in Texas where my brother was born. We were there for a couple of years and then we landed back in Tucson, I think in uh nineteen ninety. And um honestly my earliest memories of my family, my grandfather and um and all of my, my aunts and uncles was um you know, with my grandfather would be going to like meetings with him. Mm-hmm. Like that guy, I, I would get I, I would get in the car with him and we'd go grocery shopping. And he was the, the an, like an old Jew who would would go around to four or five different grocery stores to spend between ten and fifteen bucks at each one of them, <laughs> spend his coupons. And if I was good, you know, when we went to the, his AA meeting, if I was good if, through the whole morning i got to sit and uh, eat a plate of pancakes afterward and so those were like my earliest memories is like is him a bunch of old guys smoking in uh in these weird clubs and you know then my parents spent a lot of their time um helping people uh get off drugs and alcohol at our in our home mm-hmm. so for um I don't know. As long as I can remember, really, um, until I left when I was 18, there was always um, I always had a new uncle sleeping on the couch. <laughs> you know, they were offering the couch up my entire life, and there was there would be weeks, especially around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and my older sister was uh, my I I, I have three older half siblings from my dad's previous mm-hmm. marriages and they were intermittently living with us mm-hmm. and trying to get off drugs and alcohol and their friends would be sleeping on our couch and my mom always had a rule and she had a uh, and she implemented the rule with uh, me and my friends growing up is that like I don't care what you do just come back here just come back here and she was always getting these people, um, she she would give, make a deal with them like, look, if you need to stay here, you can stay here as long as you like. All you got to do, is stay sober, do some chores. And if you can do that, you got a place to live. And you'd be surprised how many people uh, took that deal and then two days later they were gone. Yeah, you I'm know? not surprised, <laughs> but I think to the <laughs> average person with no experience in recovery, they would be shy.
0: well logically, don't they? Yeah, there's no logic. I and mean, it sounds it like a good to, deal. Sounds like a great deal,
1: you know. But then I'd be like, "Hey, where where's Uncle Brett?" And it's like, "Oh, well, you know, he's in Houston right now. He's yeah. on heroin. You're never going to do heroin, are you?" It's just like, "All right, you know, that was the." So I grew up around. I just grew up in and around alcoholism mm-hmm. and addiction, and it's been... Uh, it's and more all... importantly, recovery. And recovery, right. Yeah. And it's just been a, a constant part of my life. Yeah, it, it would be so great if the average person got
0: to see what the tools are for dealing with addictions, and actually just life in general, um, because as you know the average person can afford to go through life kind of resentful, kind of full of self, uh, you know, occasionally dishonest. But for somebody who's trying to recover from compulsive self-destructive behavior, that shit is a prelapse. And yeah, I think most of us had no idea that it was about tools that we thought sobriety just meant, okay, uh, I'm just going to go sit in a room and still feel like shit and not be able to drink or get high. And who knew that you might be blessed with the gift of not having the desire to do it again? That blew my mind.
1: Yeah. Did that... you have the obsession to to use uh, lifted from you? Well, you know, yes. At, and I, I don't, I can't really pinpoint when the obsession was lifted. However, there was a couple key moments, and like the day before, I stopped everything. Um, I was beat up pretty bad. I had been on a, uh, like a three, three and a half day. In and out of blackout run—that's all you could string together. <laughs> you are disappointing, Zane.
0: <laughs> Jesus.
1: Well, I'd been blacking out no, like no, every two, single, e- every other night for the past for the previous. No, that's a twelve lot. years.
0: Yes, I've never done more than a day, so I'm just I'm just yanking your chain. So oh yes,
1: I mean people will look at me, especially in the recovery community, and be like, oh. I'll, so you you were on a three day run. Yeah. My my last run lasted three months, oh, yeah. and that was a light one. Yeah, right. like, I didn't right. sleep for fourteen days, and you know I was seeing pirates. Yeah, exactly. Everyone everyone on meth loves to compare their shadow people notes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, and I was never a meth person. I was really never a heroin person. I was an alcohol guy. Mm-hmm. I liked to drink, and I loved to smoke pot. Those were my favorite things the I remember the first time I smoked really good weed I was like my life is complete I'm going to do this forever I will never be anything but high all the time this is who I am this is my identity mm-hmm. and then as soon as parties started and I was able to start drinking um, I don't know I, I always felt separate and I always felt afraid of people and you know I needed to be doused in a social lubricant
0: mm-hmm it's a or, great, great way of putting
1: it. I was completely crippled by fear and social anxiety. And then as soon as I was lubricated with alcohol, I could, I could finally could take a breath. I could finally enjoy the party. I could make friends. I could do crazy things. I could seem cool. I could pick a fight. I could do all the things that I wished that I could do. Um, and it was amazing. So in the end, I had... Life had beat me up so much or I had beat myself up so much through the use of drugs and alcohol that the day before I stopped everything, I decided that it was uh, November 3rd of 2012 and I woke up after this three-day run and, you know, a buddy was reading me the riot act and it was the first time ever that I'd heard anything. You know, I heard him. It sunk in. And I was like, you know, he's like... You're crazy or you're psycho. You, no one what knows whether you're going to be happy or sad or mad or what zane they're going to get. And this is why you don't have any friends. And this is why no one wants to work with you. And this is why the X, Y, and Z is falling apart in your life. And I just was like, I guess I should get sober. And it, right at that moment, my mom called, and she'd been she's sober over thirty years at mm-hmm. this point. And she's like, Hey, what's going on? It's just a Saturday for her. And I'm just like, uh, I think I'm going to get sober. And she's like, What? This is crazy. And so I, as soon as that, I opened my mouth right there. I, I was like, oh no, what am I doing? Now I've committed. Oh my god, you know. And then I spent the rest of the weekend hungover, and a number of different things happened. But the following day, um, I hadn't drank, but I had smoked weed to kind of use to kind of detox myself. I was like, I can't. I'm shaking right now. I need to smoke weed. And uh, my buddy passed me a joint. It was like eleven a m we were coming back from uh from a job we did this overnight security job ran, which I don't ever do but it, it just so happened and if you're gonna do
0: security do it
1: blackout drunk dude. yeah <laughs> <laughs> burglars yeah. love that's right blackout drunk security cards uh-huh. yes they're very easy we're in luck mm mm-hmm. Yeah. go ahead <laughs> so this I, this, he passes me this joint on the way back from this job we're doing, and I said no. I said no, thanks. I don't know why, but it was just for the first time. It was honestly, I think, the first time I'd ever turned weed down ever. Um, so weird. It might, it, you know, honestly, you know, you like to think that there was some sort of divine intervention right mm-hmm. there. It could have been a mixture of my exhaustion. My sadness, my, uh, the fact that I had just had enough. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But I said no. And I went home, I ate some food, I passed out, and I woke up on November 5th for the first time in, I can't even remember, over a decade sober. And, um, you know, started taking some action and, and, uh, and, you know, got to work doing some doing some different things that that you do to get sober and um, yeah here we are six and a half years later and I've been able to maintain mm-hmm. sobriety so there was that moment that the obsession was temporarily lifted for that moment so much so that I was able to say no and then months later after you know working in I don't know doing some recovery things, mm-hmm. um, I like looked up and I was like, man, I haven't had a drink in four months. You know, and I was sitting in front of, I was talking to this young guy who had ha- had like a day sober. Mm-hmm. And I I took him out to dinner and uh I'm asking him to tell me how he's feeling. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, holy shit, that's what I was, mm-hmm. that's the, he's saying the exact same thing I was saying four months ago. and I don't feel that way. And that was the first time that I went whoa maybe maybe this whole being sober thing is working on some level right because not only was I able to buy myself dinner that night I was able to buy him dinner mm-hmm. and I up and like, like the months before I actually got sober I was unemployable before that I was doing some sales job and I was pretty good at it for a little while but 2012 hit and I hit a serious rock bottom and I couldn't I just could barely work i was leeching off my parents and my girlfriend and everyone around me and when i got sober i got this eight dollar an hour cashier job and that was enough without you know without drinking i gave myself a serious raise without buying weed every day i gave myself a serious (laughs) raise because for eight dollars an hour you know and a free meal at this restaurant i was able to save money so much that i could buy this kid dinner Mm -hmm. and look at him and and i I was an $8 an hour cashier looking at this kid, like, man, I got it made yes. compared to you. Would you classify that as a
0: spiritual moment oh, for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about the difference between just abstaining f- from drugs and alcohol, you know, for the addict or alcoholic, and emotional
1: sobriety. Okay. So it's been my experience that, um, There is a reason that I drank. Um, That reason, which is kind of hard to describe fully, is that there's an emptiness going on inside of me. There's anxiety. There's guilt. There's stress and pressure and all these things that I just can't handle. So I would put drugs and alcohol in my body to anesthetize all of that and to make everything okay. And it was more or less a medicine. So when I take all that away, and this is true for me, I took the drugs and alcohol away and I started to feel much worse. I started to feel all the the guilt, the pain, the anxiety. I started to have the suicidal thoughts. I started to get very depressed. And what I learned um, through 12-step programs, self-help, and many different books – and many different people and teachers, was that I needed to find um, something to replace the drugs and alcohol. And what's worked best for me is spirituality. And what's worked best for me is like trying to grow and um, expand my spiritual practice. So the way I've, way I've been able to cultivate, I guess, a comfortable sobriety you know, I'm in a place now where I wake up every day and it just is comfortable to be sober, which previously it was not. I used to wake up every day and I needed to smoke weed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Life just felt uncomfortable and I felt tight and I was just like, where's my bong? And I couldn't wait to have a drink and it was just all, I was just so wound up. And that's just not the case today. And I believe that what's really worked for me is... Um, Living by spiritual principles, cleaning up like my side of the street and all of the wreckage that I created in my past, apologizing where necessary sure or yeah writing wrongs, paying back debts, making things right, doing all of the the all of those things to kind of get me back to square one and then you know now on a regular basis i I pray and I meditate every morning and I do my best to enlarge my spiritual life and live by spiritual principles like simple ones, like honesty, Mm -hmm. you know, um, selflessness. And I found that when I live an honest life, for example, when I don't lie, then I don't have to feel guilt about lying. So... If I don't have to feel guilt, then there's no guilt to cover up. And there's no anxiety. And there's no... Or less exactly, anxiety. Yeah, there's less anxiety because there's no guilt. And if there's no anxiety and there's no guilt, then life's just comfortable. So, emotional, being an emotionally sober human being, I'm not that every day. Um, because I still will... I'll still find myself lying. I'll still find myself trying to cut corners. I'll still uh, find myself being like super lazy and, um, and resentful, you know, but like I will one, do those things much less. Like I'm not, I'm not stealing from, uh, I'm not shoplifting from 7 Eleven anymore. I'm not, um, I'm not stealing from the government, like lying on my taxes, I'm not cheating on my girlfriend, like, those are the things, those are the major, like, types of things that I would do. I was also a drug dealer at some point, like, I'm not committing crimes, Mm -hmm. and so that's, in and of itself, has made life a little bit easier, but now when it comes down to, like, trying to live a seemingly normal life, um, if I can work towards doing my best, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, figuring out a way to try to help someone, even if it's just a little bit throughout the day, then I'm moving towards an emotionally stable and sober place. Because I'm never there perfectly. Right. And it's not a permanent thing when you are there. Right. But I'm, it's, I am guess the goal is to just be moving in the right direction. Seeking to do the right thing. Seeking to do the right thing. Um, seeking to help out, you know trying to do my best, but also like letting myself off the hook a little Mm -hmm. bit because, you know, I got sober and I got sober to, um, specifically because I, I, I wanted to be a, a good standup comedian. And, you know, the result of getting sober was that it's not that I became a good standup comedian, but I got a chance to live whatever life that I want to live. So, I can go after the things I want to go after. And if I go out, if I wake up every day and I do my best to go get what I want and help some people along the way and, and enjoy myself and be true to myself and like my own personal integrity, then, um, I don't know, it's just being sober, is super comfortable.
0: Is there really
1: any greater accomplishment
0: in life? then finding out who you authentically are and slipping into that truth and just going about the day without the chatter of, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, or, uh, you know, why aren't you this, or why aren't you that? It, to me, is a prison of shoulda, coulda, woulda, and maybe it's an age thing because I started to do it a little bit before I got sober and then I realized I hate auditioning for commercials and I felt like, well, who am I to turn down a commercial audition? And then one day I thought, it gives you a stomachache. You hate commercials. Why are you doing it? <laughs> and it seems so obvious, but yeah. I went, okay. I'm not I don't like doing it. it probably shows because I haven't booked a single one. <laughs> so why don't we put this whole rigmarole to bed? And for me, sobriety was just more versions of that authenticity because I think when we're young, we want to be everything to everybody and then yeah. through process of elimination, our limitations can kind of become gifts and that it helps us narrowed our focus on what it is that we want to do or accomplish or who it is we want to grow
1: into. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I experienced that same thing when I got sober. So I got the job. I got a job at a restaurant for eight bucks an hour. And it was the very first time in a very long time that I felt the need to be responsible. And I took a lot of pride in being like, you know what, I'm I'm working a minimum wage job and... I'm I'm doing the right thing, and I'm I'm just—I was very um, on my soapbox about being like a perfect, dutiful human being. And what happened was that I started getting promoted at this job, Mm -hmm. and I stuck with the girlfriend that I'd been dating because she stuck by me, and and then I got promoted again. And again and again, and three years later, I found myself, uh, making a lot of money. And I had a hundred employees in three different cities. Jesus, I was the, I went from being the $8 an hour cashier to the corporate director of operations. And only because I was sober and showing up. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, in the restaurant business, If you can be sober, one, you're in the top one percentile. (laughs) You're killing it. If you can show up to work without being high or drunk, you are like Jesus of the (laughs) restaurant business. You are the king. You are LeBron James. Yeah. So I was showing up, and when you know when something would break, I'd fix it. When the the gas would go off, I'd show up and I'd be there, you know, making sure the the technicians were being led into the building. And all of a sudden, they're giving me the keys, and now they're giving me raises. Blah blah blah. But I was doing all this out of a sense of duty and responsibility, and I hated it. I hated the job. It was the bane of my existence. I was working 70 hours a week. I was sleeping with my phone next to my bed or next to my head in, mm-hmm. uh, under my pillow. And the relationship I was in wasn't working for me, but the girl was like, Hey, we need to move in. And I was like, All right, if it's easy, fine. We'll do it. You know, I, I, it's mm-hmm. the right thing to do to stick with you. And then, and, and then she was like, "Oh, you know, why won't you marry me?" And I'm like, oh, "You know what? It's the right thing to do. I'll, I'll marry you." And so three years later, I'm. And was, were those your vows at the at the altar? Yeah, it's the right, it's the right thing to do. I'll marry her. Basically, and, I mean, we're divorced now. Really? Yeah, <laughs> we're divorced now. You know, we got, I got divorced a, 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 almost a year and a half ago. But um, long story short, the point of this was that I was. Sober for three years, I was 240 pounds, and I was working a job that I couldn't stand. And at the same time, I was spending all my money. And I was broke. I was going out to dinners, spending $500 a week on on sushi dinners, and 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 going to concerts and events, and and going to see the Lakers play, and doing all this crazy stuff. And I hated myself. I was like, "What is going on with me? Like, I'm doing all of the quote unquote right things. I'm being responsible. I'm doing what everyone says I should be doing." and it was i guess it was 3 years ago that i was like i something has to change and i started really really diving into my spiritual program i um and i i didn't find it through i i didn't refine all this stuff through the uh 12 step programs i found it in from a bunch of other really weird places mm-hmm. um you know, like Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and Hal Elrod and all these, there's like a long list of these self-help guys, but everyone's given the same message. It's like, you got to be, you got to work on yourself and you got to be true to yourself. And it's all about personal development and spiritual progress. So I started meditating. I started exercising. I started reading more. I started investigating how to work for myself. And all of a sudden a year went by and Me and the ex, we went on a vacation, like a a pre-wedding honeymoon Mm -hmm. uh, to New Zealand. It was fantastic. Greatest greatest trip. And we got back, and my boss uh, at the restaurant, the owner of the restaurant, is like, look, man, we're going to fire you. Like, this past year, your work has suffered. You're not the guy. You're not working 80 hours a week anymore. We can't get a hold of you at 3.30 in the morning anymore. Like, what happened (laughs) you know he was and rightfully so because that miss your workaholism right exactly because that was the job that i signed up for yeah so you know we had that conversation we had that he had that conversation with me and i at in that moment was like all right it's time for me to leave and just serendipitously the whole doing stand up at rehabs kind of like kicked in and i started making phone calls in the morning to see if uh, before i'd go to work to see if anyone wanted to have us do what we were doing at this hospital and they did and i made i had just enough work lined up in uh for may of 2017 to pay my car payment and my rent and not enough to eat or or do really anything else but i was like okay if i can just I don't know, not eat, not eat (laughs) and not, I'll be able to leave this job and I'm just going to take a dive and, um, and I did it. I left that job on May 13th of 20, I guess, 2017 and, um, and haven't had to look back and I'll tell you, you know where my bank accounts at right now, a big effing donut. Yeah. But it, I keep being taken care of and I, um, you know, my, for somehow my bills keep getting paid and I live, my life is so much more ex, and it gets better every day. It's exponentially getting better and better and better. And, I don't know. It's just there's something about... And I, I assume you you mean internally as well as well, externally. Well, externally, I don't know. My life on paper yeah. looks way worse than it did two years ago. Right. Like you a lot of people and a lot of people in my life look at me and they go, dude, what are you going to do? Like... Is this, is what you're doing sustainable? What if this stops working at some point? How are you going to live? How are you ever going to retire? How are you ever going to buy a home, support a family? Yet all these things, right? But I don't care. That's not, those aren't the things that I want. You know, the things that I want are the things that I want personally. Mm-hmm. You know, it has nothing to do with the right way to do things or the wrong way to do things. It's just like what I want for my life personally is to do stand up. And help people recover and not have to clock into a job on a Monday morning. And I have those things. And, you know, I was actually having this conversation with a buddy of mine. It's just like, it's so funny every month. It's like, how am I going to get this done? You know, but that fear and that stress is so, for me, so much better than the stress of oh my god i have all this money and all this stuff but no time and i hate my job and right. what am i going to do you know so the the stress when you're living
0: an authentic life is much easier to handle than the stress when you're living
1: an inauthentic life for me yeah. yeah for me as well yeah that that's been my experience absolutely and i haven't been suicidal in the past 3 years you know when i was i was getting to the point it was the the December, 2016, I remember very specifically being in my bed, get awake, opening my eyes, being like, there is no point to getting out of bed. If this is what I signed up for, is this what, if this, mm-hmm. what being sober is, then I don't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make any sense. Living makes no sense. Why do I have to live this type of life where I'm supposed to be going to just do what everyone thinks I should do all the time? Um I don't like it. It was not for me. So now I'm doing, I'm living the way I want to live and, and, um, and I feel great about it. Talk about love and the giving and receiving of love. I heard,
0: you know, one of the guys in my support group meeting often says this thing is about the giving and receiving of love. And talk about love previous to you getting sober and changing
1: and, Love, giving and receiving it today. Jeez, you know, I to be completely honest, I don't. I, I I used to think I knew it all when it came into relationships. I don't necessarily I, mean romantic love. Well, okay, that, that's just what came up when you when you said that. So, but that's fine too. Okay, so the giving and receiving of love. Well, before I got sober, I thought I knew it all. I thought that I, I had had. A number of long-term relationships, and people would ask me like how to keep a girl, and I could, I would be so quick to give advice, and I thought I I knew it all, and I, and every single relationship that I was in was extremely volatile, drunken, and you know, when I was twenty-three, I got married into. I don't see a problem with that. I think that's a great (laughs) foundation for
0: an interesting relationship. It will never be boring. And you will keep lawyers employed Go you ahead.
1: know and and that carried through into um into sobriety as well, like I just like I don't know, I really would mistake I don't know quote unquote love for infatuation, mm-hmm. pity. Uh, feeling like I needed to take care of someone. Rescuing. Feel, re, yeah, rescuing someone or feeling, or I would mistake it for validation. Mm-hmm. You know, like so often do I get caught up just wishing someone would save me mm-hmm. or take care of me or or live my life for me so that I didn't have to wake up and do it every day. And I – would find myself in these codependent situations whether it be with um a romantic partner uh, a friend a work partner family member where i needed them you know and if they needed me i was there i just sh- i showed up no matter what and i don't know today i guess right now today There are some men and women in my life who I care about very deeply, and a lot of it has to do with the, I don't know, sharing of ourselves with one another. Mm -hmm. Openness. Openness. Openness, vulnerability, short talking vulnerability, about feelings. Yeah, talking about feelings, fears, fears. Yeah, there's some, um, there are some friendships that I've cultivated with men in the past six years that, um, that are extremely open and vulnerable. And there's some guys that know more about me than I don't know. I'm even willing to admit. You know, there's some guys that know my deepest and darkest secrets. And I've watched some guys, you know, uh, I've watched some guys get sober and and get their lives back and use me as um, a sounding board for their fears and their secrets. And I love those guys so much. It's just, you know, there's there's nothing like it. And there's really, the the relationships I have with these guys are not contingent on anything. There's no... Isn't
0: that beautiful? I mean, that, that to me is such a pure form of love. And, yeah. and that to me is where a lot of the feeling of I'm having a spiritual experience comes from, mm-hmm. is that... It's the opposite of the anxiety and the loneliness oh, and the yeah. despair. It's like this feeling of being buoyed by something greater than myself that I just assume in when people talk about God, mm-hmm. this must be that energy that other people yeah. find through other ways. But sorry to cut
1: you off. No, you're great. You're great. But that I mean, that's... Spread the word, would you? <laughs> I mean where I think you and I are very much on the same page you know with a lot of this stuff but I you're right, it's that there is a like a, a real sense of bonding and like there's some sort of spiritual presence in the room when someone is sharing something that they're extremely vulnerable about. Oh yeah,
0: seeing a, a gang member with face tattoos break down and cry and say that he's tired of living the way he's living and he needs help. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful. That's not. Those are not moments that you forget. And to be able to go out to coffee with that guy and have him open up to you, and um, and then see him a year later and he's sober mm-hmm. and yeah, and the gang killed him. Is it's so. No. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: At his open casket funeral, seeing oh, him a year so later. So touching, again. knowing that he was beheaded sober. <laughs>
0: um, I feel like we, we covered a lot of, of uh, spiritual kind of issues and love. But maybe that's just from my perspective, because for me, those are the biggest gifts I get out of trying to be useful, trying to tell the truth cleaning up my messes got because god knows you know i still fuck up um mm-hmm. but the seeking to do the right thing and most of it was taught to me by the time i was in third grade
1: yeah and you for you really don't realize how powerful it is to stick out your hand and offer help yeah you know Cause we're so listen. busy thinking about ourselves yeah you know and and there are other cultures that are not ours that are not the United States culture that live in this sort of altruistic way where it's like, listen, if you want to be happy, just be of service to others.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and when you say that in to the general public here, th- that doesn't really resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you from personal experience, it's as simple as doing a mundane activity. If you wash your dishes, if you're just washing your dishes, you're not thinking. If you're taking out your trash, you're not thinking. If you go out and do those types of things for other people, that just gets me out of myself mm-hmm. and and less being I you know cuz I'm so self-involved all the time. I'm so self-absorbed, thinking about like, you know, well, am I going to be able to get this money? Or why did she say that? Or why did he say this? I mean, is this going to happen? Or, or, you know, I'm constantly caught up in the past and the future. And very rarely am I present. Yeah, it's like
0: revving an engine in neutral. It's like, no, just put it in drive and go do something that is good in intention.
1: Yeah, you pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, how are you? Mm-hmm. What's going on? You got anything for me? Sure. You know, that's it can be that simple and usually is you know, for me. Well, dude, thank you for uh,
0: sharing all this stuff, and, and kudos on the, the work that you're doing. It's it's a really beautiful thing, and um, I'd love to come check it out one time. Anytime. Yeah. Social media, anything you want to uh, share where people could find you or anything you want to promote?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Zane Helberg. And then my album, Zane Helberg Live from Rehab, is on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere you stream your music. And then I have a, a podcast that's also on like Apple Podcasts and Spotify called back by sunset it is absolutely a nothing podcast it's me and a buddy we just bullshit for Mm -hmm. an hour or so um there is no meaning behind it and we will not be talking about love on that particular podcast right um but it's called back by sunset and it's very fun but yeah you can find all that stuff on uh, my twitter and instagram thank you so much man thank you many many thanks to zane um before
0: we take it out with some surveys, uh, I want to give a shout out to Bayes. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I've been feeling better because I have started taking omega 3s and it's been helping with my cognition. Well, uh, our sponsor, Bayes, uh, I tried it out. Uh, they're a personalized vitamin uh, service and you do, you, you get a blood sample at home. It's a super convenient test. Doesn't hurt. You mail it in, they analyze it, and they let you know what you have an excess of and what you have a deficiency of, if anything. And I had an excess of vitamin D and a deficiency in vitamin E and omega 3. And so they then create an individual packet for you and they ship it to you. And if you continue doing the the service every three months, you'll do the blood test, you'll mail it in, they'll analyze it because. Over time, our bodies change, and they may need to tweak what it is that you're taking. And I am feeling better already from taking the omega threes, and it's uh, it's a bit of a bit of a relief. So there you have it. If you want to try it out, go to bays.com. And you can get 20% off your first purchase of one of their products. Uh, this includes the Impact Package, giving you the full experience and three months of vitamins, the personalized vitamin script subscription, or a nutrient test kit. So go to Bayes.com, use promo code MENTAL for 20% off. Invest in your personal health today and feel the benefits at Bayes.com. And don't forget to use promo code MENTAL. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Croc hater. She writes, When I was 14, I became suicidal enough that it was time for me to go to the hospital. I had a terrible panic attack where I was scratching at my own skin with my nails enough to draw blood and I couldn't breathe. I don't know, that sounds pretty manageable to me. I did not want to exist in my own body. My mom put me in the car and took me to the emergency room. Because I was so young, I was taken to pediatrics. They sedated me and I started to feel a little numb and a little silly while still miserable. My mom was just doing her best to stay present emotionally so as to help get me the right treatment. A pediatrician wearing cartoon pattern scrubs and a pair of Crocs came in to ask me questions. He treated me in a way that was super age-inappropriate. Using a preschool teacher voice and belittling me to no end while I was talking about wanting to die, he interrupted to say, that my shoe was untied and leaned over to tie it for me. After he left the room, my mom told me she'd like to strangle him with the strap of his crock. Her dark humor was exactly what I needed in that moment. I laughed so hard and loved her so much. I stayed in the psych ward for a week after that, and the doctors did not wear crocks. I've never, uh, not worn crocks. I record this podcast wearing just Crocs. Actually, Crocs and spanks. because if I don't wear Spanx, I can't see my Crocs. And I don't like people making fun of my shoe. I wear just one shoe. That's why <laughs> I call it the shoe. And that's also where I go to when I've been bad. I get put in the single housing unit and it's shaped like a Croc. Wow. Let's all root for the end of that riff. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves sequester. They are, in their 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, They identify as... Uh, Well, they write, I've identified as a lesbian most of my adult life, but now I think I'm asexual because nothing turns me on except my own sick fantasies, and I'm no, no longer attracted to anyone. They have never been sexually abused. Uh, they've been emotionally abused and they write, I'm no psychologist, but believe my mother and sister have narcissistic personality disorder. And then parentheses, I probably have it too. All my life has been about living up to their expectations and failing miserably. The only thing I seem to be any good at is disappointing them. I'm just trying to live my life the best way I know how, but whenever life throws a wrench in the works, which is frighteningly often, my mother's response is that I have no right to cry since everything is my fault. Your mom knows how to pack a lot of horror in a single sentence. That is, I mean, that, did you talk about a one-two punch? She is not only denying your very emotional existence, But making everything your fault. That that might be the sickest sentence I've ever heard. You have no right to cry since everything is your... That's On some level, that's genius. Evil genius. Well, I'm not calling your mom evil, but what she said is so fucked up. Uh, My sister's response is to insist that I'm not trying hard enough and I'm ungrateful. Wow! The quadruple mindfuck. That's a tag team. You, your sister and your mom should go on the road to make people feel bad. I have no right, the, the projection to her. Uh, I have no right to be depressed because there are so many less fortunate people than me. And that's number five from the greatest hits of shit that is so fucked up to tell ourselves or to have other people tell us. The biggest hurdles we can place in front of ourselves while trying to get healthy are those five thoughts. You have no right to cry, everything is your fault, you're not trying hard enough, you're ungrateful, and there are more people who are less fortunate. All of those things are completely counterproductive to getting healthier and yet we believe them so often. Especially if we've been raised in an environment where that was our normal. So when I can't help but be depressed, all I want to do is kill myself because, one, I have no one to blame but myself, and two, I'm stealing time, space, and energy from someone who deserves to be on this planet. Wow, the black and white thinking that goes on in your family is so unhealthy. Darkest thoughts. Very often I think about what my family's life would be like without me. The whole, it's a wonderful life shtick, but sans the stupid angel getting their stupid wings. I love watching a stupid angel get their stupid wings. They're usually dirty, a nice pair of dirty wings, a couple of broken feathers. Uh, And the person puts the, the, the wings on them and, you know, kind of does that last little final brushing them off and then looks them in the eye and says, you're an idiot. Now go fly. Then naturally, I think about what my life would be like if I had a loving, nurturing mother or if, I, or if I were an only child, and that's when I feel ashamed. Darkest secrets. I indulge in rape fantasies where I can get up the gumption to even, when I can get up the gumption to even masturbate. I'm always the victim of... And when things are looking especially grim, it's usually a gang rape situation. Sometimes it's a combination of rape and murder where I masturbate to fantasies about being beaten, raped, and then stabbed or strangled to death. I know this is sick, but it gets, quote, gets me off every time. Afterwards, I just curl up in a fetal position and put my arms around myself. I've said it a thousand times on the podcast. We have no control over what it is that turns us on and to judge ourselves for it is not only being mean to ourselves but we are we're denying ourselves sexual satisfaction it would be different if you were violating other people's boundaries or you were doing this so compulsively that it it was degrading other areas of your life but so what if this is what it is that gets you off so what my God, if if this life, if this planet was rid of people that had shame about what gets them off, uh, let's just say there would be no traffic. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Already answered this one, but we'll amend it by saying that sometimes I, quote, pound myself so hard that I bleed. I've also given myself urinary tract infections and yeast infections. And oddly, this gives me a strange feeling of self-satisfaction, as if I should be proud that I've punished myself so thoroughly. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mother and sister to stop trying to control me and everyone else in their lives and focus instead on their own self-improvement and self-care. You know what would be great? would be to say that and then set boundaries with them. And when they violate those boundaries, cut contact either temporarily or permanently with them because trying to make them see that is a way of trying to control them. And I know you're just answering the question, what if anything would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? But it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole of trying to reason with people who are sick. And that in itself, if we can't let go of it, is a sickness in and of itself that we need to deal with. I'd like to ask my father why he refuses to acknowledge the dysfunction in our family and tell him to be strong enough to stand up for himself and stop enabling my mother, but it's too late for any of that. What if anything do you wish for? A quick and painless death. What if, instead of focusing on that as your solution, what if you focused on protecting yourself from toxic people? and creating a family that you're not related to but that loves you unconditionally and sees you and validates your feelings and your experiences and your pain and you learn to trust again you learn to be vulnerable and you get to embrace the joy of being intimate and feeling connection and healing that part of yourself that was robbed that innocence have you shared these things with others? I've shared with a psychotherapist who promptly di- promptly diagnosed me with clinical depression and threw pills at me. Uh, I wonder if that therapist can't prescribe pills. So I, she must have been a meant a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, a year and thirty six hundred dollars later, I weaned myself off the antidepressants and stopped seeing my psychotherapist. How do you feel after writing these things down, relieved, calm, and resigned? Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you can find someone, anyone, to talk to who will be nonjudgmental and who will simply listen without trying to, quote, fix you, then you are supremely blessed. I hope that you take your own advice and you build a new family. And then there, it takes the pressure off of trying to fix your family of origin. <laughs> this, I love this name. It's so, it, it's an awful moment. Fill out by, by a woman who calls herself Shitney Houston. She writes, I struggle with mornings, both physically and mentally, but I have to get up early for work five days a week. I often stay up late into the night or early morning, worrying and obsessively researching things that make me even more anxious until I finally fall into a fitful, exhausted sleep. One particularly bad day found me sobbing in the shower, dreading the day ahead, dreading my whole life, but forcing myself to get ready anyway because the prospect of missing work was even more anxiety-inducing than going to work. Still crying, I got out of the shower, started applying my face cream, my tears mixing with it, and I thought, well, at least I'm getting double the moisturizer today. That is, That would be a hell of a T-shirt. A picture of somebody's face, face cream and tears. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a Woman who calls herself Hedgehog and um, trigger warning. I know I'm bad at, at, at giving trigger warnings, but um, this certainly isn't the darkest that, that we've done. But um, she identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Oh, I would say that it's more than that. I've uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And I would say absolutely fucking counts. She writes, When I was little, my dad was watching TV, and I remember climbing onto his lap and cuddling him and him kind of tickling me. I think I stayed there a while, and I remember him his hand wandering. It went inside the leg of my shorts to where my underwear was. I don't remember how much further in. only remember feeling confused. I must have been four or five, and the memory remains. I also remember when I would hop into bed for a cuddle at night. He would check to see if I was wearing underwear. I was, he would tell me to go take it off because it was unhealthy to sleep with it on. At the time, this made sense, but looking back, did he genuinely care that I let my crotch breathe? I am not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and I can tell you that that is from the greatest hits of sexual abuse. Covert, I would even say overt sexual abuse. There is no You know, and oh, well, let me ask you this. I'm acting as if you're right there able to answer me, but did your father do that whenever? Did he ask you that question whenever you weren't getting into bed with him? Probably not. Your dad is a sick, sick man, and that is sexual abuse. And I would, I would talk to a therapist about that. Um, darkest thoughts. My dad has esophageal cancer. It may yet be curable, but a big part of me hopes it isn't and hopes we can just get it over with. How could you not feel that way? You went to this man in such an innocent, vulnerable state, going to him for affection, and he turned it around and took your fucking innocence. Not only did he deny you it, but he used your vulnerability, and that beautiful childhood innocence against you? How could you not feel the way that you do? Darkest secrets. The entire duration of my fifth year of marriage, I was involved. And you know what? I would love to see somebody do this to a parent who does that whole, you know, oh, you're going to climb into bed, take your underwear off. If you confront them with that and they deny that that was something bad say okay well then the next time we're in a group of people around your friends I'm gonna bring it up and then we'll see if you still feel that you didn't do anything wrong darkest secrets the entire duration of my fifth year of marriage I was involved in an affair it was more emotional and physical and I told my husband Through therapy, I found it's largely because I wasn't emotionally vulnerable in the marriage, which is so common, too, when innocence gets taken by somebody who who we trusted. Uh, But we're still in a crisis period, and that has sparked all sorts of other shit that I've used to cope over the years, especially starving, purging, and trichotillomania, uh, in parentheses, hair-pulling. More secrets. Can we ever be free of our self-destructive, self-soothing, I believe we can, or at the very least, we can have the freedom of choice restored to us. You know, The urges to go back to those old coping mechanisms, those old self-soothing techniques that we learned as kids to survive, that urge might always be there as a little ember, but what we can do is we can build a life around ourselves where we don't feel cornered and where we have connection, and then we're not given oxygen to that. That little ember. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Imagine imagining someone having their way with me, who is more powerful and knowledgeable than I am. Which is totally in keeping with what happened with you. You know, the things that get us off are generally the things that are, in some way, most painful or most anxiety-inducing to us. It's our brain's way of trying to go back and fix a wrong. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell the person I had an affair with that I am sorry and that I take full responsibility and that he is finally free. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could be a generally functional human, someone who sees what they ought to do and somehow does it, someone who sees what they ought to not do do and refrains. Instead, I am a fish flopping about on dry land, no good to anybody but the birds." You know, that's black and white, black and white thinking that is going to keep you stuck. You know, it's like I talked about uh, earlier in the podcast that when we think less of ourselves, we tend to think more often about ourselves, but in a way that is just kind of futile and it's just a negative cycle of I'm a piece of shit, et cetera, et cetera. And it's actions that are going to get us out of that, not thinking about ourselves more. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. If I did, people would think it was a pitiful cry for attention. No, not a healthy person. A healthy person would give you a hug and say, I am so sorry that you had to experience that. The man who was supposed to protect you was the very person he was supposed to be protecting you from. And that is something to cry about. But more importantly, to process and to heal from. How do you feel after writing these things down? Mostly worried about the text being found. Is there anything you'd like to share one who shares your thoughts or experiences? Oh, this is so beautiful. We don't think of our flaws as the glue that binds us together, but they are. Grace only sticks to imperfections. I love that. I love that. It sounds like deep down you know what the truth is, but that ability to trust is so scary. It's such a leap of faith. It is such a leap of faith to try to trust again. But I'm glad I did it because it's given me a life that is so much that has so much beauty and connection in it. And while I still have shit that I struggle with, I am able to trust And it feels really good. It feels really fucking good. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Grace. That's right. This is filled out by my dog. Actually, I don't call her Grace. I call her Gracie. And she writes, Last week I had a pretty rough, anxious, depressive episode. I wasn't able to leave the house for a few days. On Thursday, I was forced to go out for a job interview around noon. I left my door and car keys inside by accident and locked myself out of the apartment right before I was supposed to go, which is a common occurrence for me as someone with ADHD. Luckily I had all my things, wallet, phone, journal, pens, pouch full of smooth rocks to roll in my hands as fidgets, etc. took a cab to the interview and nailed it. I ended up getting the job. I decided to walk at least part of the way home to save money and came upon a park I'd never noticed before. It was a huge restored prairie next to a wooded area. I went on an impromptu hike and started to feel really clear-headed and calm by the end. I realized I had no way to get into my apartment until 5 p.m. when my roommate would get home so I made a day of it. I walked four miles to the botanical gardens and spent hours just journaling and meditating in all of the different sitting places. The buzzing bugs and fragrant plants nursed me back to health. I walked another mile to get pizza afterwards and ate it outside in the sun. When I'm stuck inside, I get really scared of spiders. I project fear of my own mind onto the spiders and convince myself they are going to infest my space and crawl on me without my permission. That day, I saw all kinds of cool spiders and was able to watch them without feeling afraid. I've been feeling a lot more safe since that day. Wow. That is so... That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. It's like Everything, every coping mechanism, or so many of the coping mechanisms that help us are, are are in that nature. Being kind to yourself, being in the moment, accepting reality, giving things a good shot, um, just showing up, and looking at things differently. It's amazing how when we take the actions that are suggested to us by healthy or knowledgeable people that our perspective changes. And it's like the world doesn't change, but the way we look at the world changes. And very often, that's the very thing that unlocks the door to the, the beautiful life or the beautiful moments, at the very least, that, that we want. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, just remember that you are not alone.